Good morning. Guys, as the youth pastor here at FBC, Alden right here, as he walks off stage, is one of my high schoolers. And in my biased opinion, the Lighthouse kids are pretty awesome. And uh, they, they use their talents in many different ways. Uh, and so it's cool to see him up here. Like I said, I'm the youth pastor. My name is Jeff. Uh, welcome to everyone online and here in person. Uh, here at FBC, uh, we are community, community helping everyone discover faith, grow in love for God and others, and also being ambassadors. Uh, one sec. Guys, honesty moment. Neil, my boss over here, challenged me to memorize our mission statement. I am the worst person at memorizing things. No, no applause. No applause. I had it yesterday. I had it yesterday. The end. The ambassadors part. Live as ambassadors of hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. There we go. We did it because of the Holy Spirit. See? All right. So close. Next time. So close. All right. We get into some announcements here. Uh, first up, we have Grace and Truth. There it is. Grace and Truth. Uh, I'm going to read this little snippet about it. Grace and Truth is a five-week small group learning experience that introduces Christians to LGBT, LGBT plus people, the language to use and avoid, a theological faithful view of marriage and sexuality, and practice, practical guidelines on how to embody the love of Christ towards sexual and gender minorities. So this is going to be a cool opportunity. Bronwyn will be leading this. It starts this week at 7 p.m. There are a few spots remaining uh, for this. So if you're interested, you can head over to the website, fpcdavis.org slash events, and you can sign up for a spot to join them for that small group discussion and study uh, on that. And then next, we have next week, there it is, welcome to church lunch. Who doesn't love a lunch after church? So if you're new here, maybe this is your first time, this would be a great thing uh, to come to. Also, if, you know, maybe you're a college student that just came back, uh, a month ago, and, and you've just started coming to FBC, this would be great for you to get plugged in. Or maybe you've been coming for a while and haven't really feel, felt connected. Uh, this also would be a great opportunity. Uh, we'll be at the Gross's house. It's just around the corner. You can find their address uh, on our website as well, and make sure to RSVP for that so there's enough food for everyone. All right, and the next announcement has a video with it as well. Uh, this is Davis Neighbors Night Out. We've talked about this uh, over the last month or so. It is today. So check out this video uh, and get some more info on it. Hey, FBC. Uh, Neil, Bronwyn, and Peter here, and we're excited for Davis Neighbors Night Out. It's Woo! tonight. And uh, Peter, Bronwyn, uh, tell us all what you love about Davis Neighbors Night Out. I have been to several Davis Neighbors Night Out, just kind of a block party all over the city. It's a wonderful opportunity to meet the people I live next door to, usually just like drive and wave as we're pulling out in the morning. And we actually get to know people's names and build some relationship. It's such a great way to um, build some connection with the people we live with. Our literal love your neighbor next door. Yeah, that's awesome. Peter, you live in Woodlands. So you don't do Davis Neighbors Night Out. So could you just say the phrase Davis Neighbors Night Out 10 times fast? Davis Neighbors Night Out. Just kidding, just kidding. No, but here's what I want to say. <laughs> Tell about... us what you love about block parties. What <laughs> well, do you love about block parties? I, for maybe the last year, when I think about what should my next step of obedience be, I keep thinking, why don't I just have a block party? And I have exactly. not done it. So I'm okay. living in disobedience. But you all get to live out my dream. You could do it tonight. I could do it tonight. There's nothing stopping you. Who's inviting me? No, you should, invite, okay. no, no yeah. you should invite people on your block because you don't live in Davis. All right. Um, okay, tell us, uh, what is your tips for 
having a block party. Meeting your neighbors that you just usually wave to. My you tips? Any, yeah, your tips. Bronwyn, if you have any tips. Okay, I'm going to give you tips about how to have a conversation. Sure. Because often conversations with people can be kind of dull, mm -hmm. potentially. You kind of wonder, wow, this conversation not going anywhere. So here's what I think. I think everyone that you're going to meet at the block party, what they want is for someone to pay attention to them and be sure. interested in them. Because here's the secret. Everyone's interesting. Everyone's an expert in something. And so I think there's two things we could do. First thing you can do is you can be interested. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the reason that people often don't have that interesting of conversations is because the person you're talking to isn't sure that, that you're someone to trust with their important information, the things they care about, their interests, their, their likes, their desires. And so you can show you're interested by asking a question, asking a follow-up question. Uh, what did you do this weekend? What's the best thing you ate? Tell me why you ate that. That kind of thing. Uh, and then the other thing you could do, because you are also interesting, and you are a delight to the block party, is you can be interesting. And have a little bit that you can bring to the table, and you can say, here's my offering, and uh, I'd like for you guys to feast on this conversation topic. Um, have a little bit, have some story, have some interest that you want to talk about with people. They'll love it. That's cool. That's a great tip. Uh, Bronwyn, what's your tip for meeting people at a block party? Uh, I think bring something to share. If it's not food, a game, if you have kids in the mix, Bring something that you can invite people to do with you, even if it's slow, like a set of dice or a, a picture to pass around, mm -hmm. um, something to to start the conversation. One of those you big know. connect four. Yeah, oh, one yeah. of those. Oh, yeah. yeah, a really cute cuddly dog. You sure? You know, yes, sure. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. My tip is just go. That's and, a good tip. Uh, just go tonight, <laughs> find a block party, um, host a block party. It's not too late if no one on your block is doing it. Just like find one and go enjoy guys yeah. bless you as you meet your neighbors and as you share um, your presence and your gifts and God's love with people and good yeah. food good food All awesome yeah. glad you're here glad you've joined us in online uh, I'm Steve and I'm the senior pastor here I'm glad you're here for this week this is the third week of our fall focus where we, every year, we get together as a church and we study one thing together. So everywhere from children's ministry to in here to some of our small groups, we're focusing in on happiness. Uh, not happiness in the sense that we might have where we feel good in terms of having a well-being with our circumstances, but happiness in Jesus' frame that he continually calls blessed. In the sense of the Beatitudes. It's a happiness of having a well-being sense with God, of understanding how he assesses us, assesses our condition to be able to receive his kingdom come, to receive the up there in heaven he's bringing down here to earth. And many times, we've already discovered these first two weeks, that sense of well-being looks a little bit upside down, and hence the name. Now, one person who uh, has had it all is Steve Jobs. Um, he is the epitome of success, don't you think? Achievement in our world. He's the founder and charismatic leader of Apple, a visionary, a genius. He's the design guru of stuff that is sitting on this table in front of me and quite possibly sitting in your purse or pocket right now in the iPhone, the iPad. Uh, the iPod, which no one uses anymore, right? Multi-billionaire. From the outside looking in, Steve Jobs had it all. Power, prestige, talent, position, celebrity. 
He's everything any of us could possibly dream about for life and for happiness. I mean, ask yourself something. What else could someone possibly need to be happy and have a sense of well-being about life than what Steve Jobs was? But there were always whispers about Steve Jobs and what he was like behind the scenes. Whispers that suggested that there was a bad Steve behind the good Steve that we all saw in the mock turtlenecks. And sure, sure enough, investigations into those whispers after his death where he couldn't protect them any longer revealed just a huge ego and downright heartless behavior that he used to get what he wanted. He cheated his friend and Apple co-founder, Steve Wozniak, out of a sizable project fee early on in their partnership. He denied paternity of his first daughter to avoid being called her dad and having to financially support her and her mother, who then ended up having to go on welfare just to make ends meet. One time, Steve Jobs lied to the SEC about backdating stocks. And then he laid the blame on someone else at Apple. The certain someone who just happened to be the guy who gave him some crucial advice when he went back to Apple that saved Apple from bankruptcy. How's that for payback? And he would push employees beyond their breaking points, according to many of them. And he instilled a culture of fear among employees, resorting to abuse, uh, verbal abuse, and firing them without notice and without severance. And then even outside of the confines of the business world of Apple, he did things that were inexplicably selfish and heartless. Like he was very well known to release his car so that under California law, he didn't have to get a new license plate and he could park in the handicapped spots, which he did often. And Steve Jobs never gave to charity according to public records. He even cut off charity at Apple. I mean, those are just glimmers of the ongoing patterns that I'm sure you've heard about that were easily observable without nitpicking or like going on some witch hunt for a guy who can't defend himself anymore. Steve Jobs was a man who wanted what he wanted and he allowed nothing to get in his way. Now, I'm not sure any of us would endorse what he did, but still we get it, don't we? We get why he did what he did, even if we don't like the extremes that he might have gone to. How people have to go after what they want in this world to get it. Um, How people have to assert themselves and their rights to make sure things go well for them so that they can be happy, safe, secure, successful. And how people have to do what's best for them first to have a chance to grab that golden ring. We get how things work, don't we? Or do we? Do we get actually how life and happiness really work? Or have we bought into some sort of notion of happiness of, you know, the ends justify the means to some extent? Well, Let's see what Jesus says. And then let's think this out this morning and and check it against this sensibility of ours. So if you have a Bible with you, I want you to find your way to the Beatitudes in your Bible app as well. It's Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 12. 
Again, we're going to read this whole mosaic of Jesus on happiness in the Beatitudes just so we can keep the whole together and not just parcel out the parts. So if you grab one of those blue Bibles, it's page 809. And as you get there, Claire Barrett is going to come on up and read this out loud for us. So let's pay attention, shall we? Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, that's Jesus' plan for happiness. And in particular for us this morning, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This one seems like absurdity, doesn't it? Utter madness, because nice guys finish last. Uh, It's the Steve Jobs of the world, the the arrogant, the aggressive, the take charge, who get the earth. They're the ones who get everything they want to be happy and have a sense of well-being because they get to arrange their lives, their jobs, their achievement, their relationships, their house, their portfolio for their own good. At best, the meek can only hope to inherit heaven, right? Not the earth. I can still hear the words ringing in my ears of a much older guy named Buzz, um, who I worked with back in the 80s. And yes, that was his actual name, Buzz. And we worked long hours together doing maintenance on and around the dams in the Denver metro area. And so we had lots of time to talk. And he used to talk to me about this very verse. Uh, It was strange. He'd say things like, the meek inherit the earth? I don't see how it could happen because that's not how it works around here. Or he'd say something like, the meek don't inherit the earth. I mean, that's impossible. And I wish I could tell Buzz now, I don't know. Um, or our, and, and, and even our own confusion has to do with this word meek. To be meek is not to be weak. It's not to be milk toast or a feeble wallflower. The word that Jesus uses is what, that we've translated as meek is this word. Prouse. Prouse is gentleness, uh, humility, uh, not being aggressive. But it's not just that in the abstract. It's gentleness as from a giant. It's someone who has great power, but they don't throw their weight around. It's, it's power under control and under submission to someone greater. And so the Greeks uh, would say that medicine is prouse. If it used its power to soothe what ailed. Or they'd say a ruler was prouse if they were kind to their own people but stern with their enemies. They'd say a judge is prouse if the judge were lenient 
in their judgment, but while the law could be severe. Haddon Robinson even dug up a letter somewhere, I don't know where he got it from, in the, from the Peloponnesian Wars, where a young soldier wrote his young fiancée about a gift he had for her. It was a white stallion. And he described this stallion, he says, as the most magnificent animal I have ever seen. He responds obediently to the slightest command. He allows his master to direct him to his full potential. And then he wrote, he is a prouse horse. He is a meek horse. He wasn't saying that he was meek and mild or he was some old plow horse that you could just beat on. He was a magnificent stallion with, with great spirit. But that spirit was under control and gentle to its rider. Prouse is to be a gentle giant. And this sense of the Greek is not, is not limited to them. The Bible also reflects this sense uh, in only two figures in the Bible who are ever described as prouse. One figure is Moses. In the ancient Greek translations of Numbers verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 3, we read, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Moses was meek, prouse, which is an odd thing to say that if he were weak and milquetoast, as we might conceive of meekness. Essentially, he spearheaded a revolution of his people against the ancient world's superpower at the time, even killing one Egyptian who had beaten a Hebrew slave. Forty years later, he stood in front of the leader of that, so, of that superpower and Pharaoh and demanded that he let his people go. So I doubt Pharaoh would have, would have characterized him as milquetoast. And then Moses would lead 600,000 men with women and children in tow through the wilderness over 40 years and take them to the doorstep of the promised land, which no wimp could have done. None of that sounds weak and milquetoast as we conceive of meekness to be. How can he be the meekest on earth? Because he was a gentle giant of a person. His power was under control. The other figure in the Bible who's characterized as meek, is, maybe comes as no surprise, is Jesus. When Jesus invites people to come to himself, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus characterizes himself as gentle. Prouse. Which is again an odd thing to characterize himself if he were a wallflower. I doubt any one of the money changers at the temple who had their tables overthrown and run out of, the tip, out of the temple at the tip of a whip that Jesus was whipping them with would say that he's a wallflower. I doubt his disciples would say that he's a wimp after seeing him still a storm on the sea, chasing demons from their hosts, or challenging the powers that be and the religious powers that were there. And so Jesus appropriately described himself as prouse because... 
He was a gentle giant. As one who possessed the ultimate power of God himself, but did not throw his weight around. To be meek is not to be weak or to become a milquetoast version of ourselves. To be meek is to recognize your power because we all have power. We all have power. Power and influence, resources, relationships, education, expertise, status, passion, emotions. And meekness is to take all of that and have enough restraint not to throw it around to get our way, but to leverage it for what God would deem as good. Anger at the right things, at the right levels, and at the right times. Words spoken in the right ways, with the right tones, and the right times that make our point without impaling people on it. Using our power and our standing in right ways for others, at right times. That's what it is to be meek. And the challenge for you, the challenge for me to move into meekness and growing it as a part of ourselves isn't just a matter of you and I just kind of mustering the strength here together. Like kind of just giving this pep talk this morning and just garnering more self-control. Don't get me wrong. That stuff helps. But to become meek actually fundamentally is a matter of trust in God as, it, as cliche as that sounds. I mean, look again at what Jesus says here. That's framed as a promise. That's positioned as something that God will do if we trust him to do it without having to seize the reins of what we want and when we want to get it rush just now. Or in other words, meekness hinges on us being able to depend on God enough to bring what we need and allow him to meet it instead of throwing our weight around to get it. That means... We have to begin with this position of trust and faith before God. A position where we recognize, you know, the poverty of our spirit in that first beatitude that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. That we begin with our bankruptcy of sin before him, mourning how we've become in that second beatitude and what our world is like. So that we would trust how Jesus lived for us, how he died for us, how he was risen for our forgiveness and freedom and life with God. And then from that position of dependence on God, we move out towards people, trusting God to bring his kingdom and his resources to us in his time and in his wisdom so that we'd have the necessary restraint to be meek with people, to bring that power under control, to live as a gentle giant because we all have power waiting on the true giant in the room in God to usher in what we need. Think of it this way. Last year, we added another dog to our family named Dax. Um, he's a rescue dog. He is a cute bugger, isn't he? Um, but he's a rescue dog, and, and he lived in a house full of dogs that included some German shepherds. And that dude is like 12 pounds, right? He's more of a chew toy, I think, you know. 
So when he came to our house, he was mostly mousy until he got comfortable. And then once he got comfortable, he was a wild man. I mean, like his hairdo suggests. I mean, he's as wild as that sticking up. Um, And he didn't even know how to walk on a leash. And when he was on a leash, he'd lunge at dogs and people. He's what you call a reactive dog. And so Jenny and I signed him up for obedience classes like right away. Every week we take Dax to this class with other dogs to try to help this guy out and to help us out, right? And Dax, God love him because he was banished to the outskirts of the class. You know, we had to do it 20 feet away from the other dogs. Um, so because at a distance, our instructor said, he could learn and he could bond with us, not in the midst of the other dogs. And we just kept taking him week after week after week and doing everything that the instructor said, and then we practiced it during the week. It was like intensive training for Dax. And in particular, I learned that when he felt danger, like I should get his attention and reward it, right? And slowly but surely, Dax kind of calmed down a little bit. If he was a 10, he went down to like a 7, right? And he learned that instead of lunging, he should look up at me. Gain the security he needs to have the restraint of his power. And he learned that so thoroughly that eventually he was let into the doggy circle (laughs) at obedience class. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, um, Jenny and I were walking him around in our neighborhood, and we ran into a neighbor friend who has a couple of dogs. This was the same neighbor friend who had two dogs that when we first got Dax, we thought, yeah, let's introduce him. And Dax, like, went berserk, went after their dogs. And that day, though, the neighbor friend stood in the middle of the street, and we sat on the sidewalk. And Dax, no lunging, no barking, Dax just sat there. And you could just tell that he got nervous, because I knew he was getting nervous, because he'd look up at me, and I'd give him a treat. He was restraining his power, and he showed that he had grown in meekness. So why? What, what happened? Um, Dax had bonded with me and found his security in me to the point that when there is danger, he'd look up at me. And that helped him to restrain his power and choose to be meek instead of a wild man that he is, that crazed dog mode. I think we can learn from Dax. We practice and learn what Dax did. Instead of lunging, we look up. So in all those situations where we want to lunge and take someone out, throw our weight around, we look up, up to God. Regain the calm that we need. Be reassured that he is there and he is with us and he's got us. So we don't have to, we can restrain our power. He's got the power there. Call it doing a dax, right? And we do a dax We practice it in all kinds of situations, big and small, that we're going to run into today and even this coming week. You know, when we're being criticized and we want, you know, when we're in an argument, when we're desperate and feeling the need for that thing, when we're feeling entitled, we deserve this, when we're feeling threatened, when we feel hurt, it's a chance for us to practice a dax instead of lunging throwing our weight around. Look up. Look up to God. Regain the calm by remembering He's our God. And He's got us. And He'll take care of us.
so we can restrain our power. We don't have to throw our weight around. He's got us. And you see, that's how we progressively learn to be meek. What may be strange to us now then becomes second nature as we stop lunging, we start looking. And this, we step into Moses' shoes. Even Jesus' rhythm of life. And this is where substantive happiness actually lies in Jesus' theory of happiness. Because this is where God's promise is. This is where God showers down the up there in heaven, down here to earth to us. This is where they shall inherit the earth. It's actually a quote from Psalm chapter 37, verse 11, where the Israelites were promised entrance into the land of Israel that God had promised them. But the entrance into the promised land of Israel was always seen as a pointer to a much bigger entryway into the ultimate promised land in the new heavens and the new earth. And so this certainty of a promised place, when when God fully restores the creation, power washes it of its evil and its sin and its death and decay, that is a place for the meek. Those who live in trust of God and receive in faith the credit of Jesus' life the payment of Jesus' death, the rising to new life. To them is entrance given into this ultimate new heaven and this new earth to inherit it. But it is equally true that the arrogant and the power seekers will not inherit the earth. And I was struck by how much so in Haddon Robinson's explanation of this. He noted how world history is littered with those who've powered up, aggressively thrown their weight around, and gained the earth for a while. Where are they now? Where is the Roman Empire? The Mongol Empire? The Ming Dynasty? The Ottoman Empire? The Third Reich? Where are they? In the dustbin of history. They might have gained it for a while, but they did not inherit the earth. And what is true of world history is actually true of the animal kingdom, if we think about it. Lions and tigers are power brokers on land, not the sheep and the goats, right? Eagles are the ones who control the airs, not the sparrows and the doves. Yet, which ones are on the endangered species list? Not sheep and goats, right? Not sparrows and doves. It's the power brokers in the land and in the air. They certainly didn't inherit the earth. But what's true of world history? What's true of the animal kingdom is also true of personal relationships. The aggressive and the self-seeking are lonely people with a trail of wounded people behind them. For all of Steve Jobs' greatness, I doubt any employee was sad when he stepped aside. Afraid of what may happen to Apple, yes, I'll give you that. Certainly not sad. The people who use others as their pawns to get what they want. They're the ones who enjoy the spoils, and they enjoy them utterly alone. Or they have to coax and bribe people with those spoils to enjoy them with them. But the meek, the gentle giants are who are so because of their trust in Christ and dependence on God. They're the ones who are actually truly happy in this. They're the ones who get to enjoy what they have, 
because as a gift from God. Because they're not aggressively making it their way and they can see how God has arranged it and brought it into their lives and so they can receive it as a gift. All of life becomes a gift to the meek. They have a relational world with room for other people because they don't have to throw their weight around and crush people around them. People like being around these kinds of people. In short, they may not have grabbed that golden ring or have the world by its tail, but they get to enjoy the earth now and wait until they inherit the whole kit caboodle with Jesus. How is that not the best and most substantive happiness available to us? We don't get there using Steve Jobs' approach or even a tamed-down version of it. What we have to do is actually flip it upside down and even amplify that until we are meek. So stop lunging. Start looking. Because happy are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth and they get to enjoy it now. Let's pray to that end, shall we? God, our Father, in so many ways we desperately want to be happy and we do what we can to ensure it. We throw our weight around instead of just taking a posture of receiving from you. And so, God, I pray, I pray that you would reorganize our heart, reorganize our thoughts, our posture in this, that we can just tip a little bit more in trust and dependence on you. Would you help us not to lunge and to start looking, trusting that you have got us and that you will bring what we actually need. We don't have to throw our weight around because the up there in heaven is coming down here to earth through Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and we get to receive it when we would allow it to come from you and not take it on our own. And so God, would you reframe our posture? Give us a deeper heart of trust. Help us to see and enjoy life now, making room for people, making room for you to give us what we actually need. And we ask that you would do this for your glory, for our ongoing joy and substantive happiness that comes from you. We pray this in Christ's name.